This morning we're in the book of 1 Corinthians, so I'll invite you to turn there with me, please. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll be looking at three verses together today. Verses 9, 10, and 11. And so let's just begin our time looking specifically at those three verses. I'll read them. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I'd like to begin this morning just with a statement that I believe we all already know to be true, but I want to emphasize that reality together this morning, that what you believe matters. Um, This is an absolute biblical truth that what you believe actually does matter, and this is an emphasis that Paul in particular gives us to the church. And I just want to illustrate that this morning. Now, why am I stating this as we begin our time together in the text? Because this will challenge, especially in our cultural moment here, this is going to challenge beliefs, okay? What's the scripture you have to say? I'm going to read these three passages, okay? This is Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 14, and it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and stature and fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Okay, so we are to grow into maturity And God has provided to the church uh, teachers and built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And God has given teachers to teach what? To teach the word that has been laid down. And as we understand the word that has been laid down, the goal of these things is that we might grow into the fullness and the stature of Christ in order that we might be mature. And if we are mature, then we are not children. And children are tossed to and fro by the waves, the waves of what? the waves of incorrect doctrine carried about by every wind of doctrine. And so when new things come in and teaching, it sweeps you away. But now if you were mature, this wouldn't happen. And so maturity and what we know go together. Do you all see the connection? So we must know in order to grow in maturity. What you believe matters. Or Titus 1, 7 through 9, it says, For an overseer, that is synonymous with that of an elder, as God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. And so this is an incredible emphasis in the scriptures, isn't it? That we must hold in the church to sound doctrine. And you should know that the word doctrine right there, it just means teaching, okay? So we must hold to what is sound teaching. How do we know what is sound, what is good, what is solid, what is accurate? How do we know that? How do we know that it's sound? Well, there is a check for us, isn't there? And the check for us that we check all doctrines to is the very word of God itself, which has been laid down for us. And then the final one I'd like to read this morning is Romans 16, 17 through 18. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. 
and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, what's funny about this passage, in a sense, is that basically anybody can be told that this is true of them, right? We hear this all the time, especially in the social media world. Um, uh, you, you just have smooth talk and flattery. You're twisting the scriptures. Everybody tells everybody that they're twisting the scriptures, right? On every side, no matter what you do. So, you know, everyone will be, it will be said. If you, if you are teaching something, you will be said. Uh, it will be said of you, you're twisting the scriptures. And so this phrase then loses all meaning, okay? So what, are, what exactly is happening though, ultimately, is that there are people who do not teach sound doctrine according to what has been taught. We know what has been taught. We have what has been taught. It is recorded for us. It is delivered to us. And so we must teach then according to what has been taught in the scriptures. So then we ask, what do the scriptures say? And once we arrive at what the scriptures say, this is what we must teach, whether we like it or don't like it, whether it's popular or unpopular, whether it makes us out to be sinners or not sinners. We must listen to what the scriptures have to say. Now, why is this important? I, I do have a little image I'm, I'm going to put on the screen for you. So I know that you can't really read what is on the left. I can barely read it standing right here. So what this is, is it's an image from Pew Research. And uh, this was conducted in 2014. And in 2014, here is what was uh, discovered. Okay, what you have on the left are, per are, uh, are percentages from a previous year. I believe that was 2005. Uh, but then on the right, you have the growth from that period of time to 2014 in percentages. And what you have on the right side are different denominations being uh, given. So 70% then of Catholics uh, believe that homosexuality should be accepted. Uh, and then it continues down. Mainline Protestant, 66% believe that. 62% Orthodox Christian, 54% of all Christians believe that homosexuality should be accepted. This was in 2014, and I'll just ask you, has anything significant happened between the year 2014 and 2023? What do you think? I mean, quite obviously, right? Uh, if you don't know the answer to that, I mean, you've, you've, you've not been awake the last few years, okay? There has been significant uh, change in our culture, hasn't there? And it has, in a sense, created a dividing line because particular issues have, have become on the forefront of the culture's mind. It's pressed in on every side. And so what this has done is you can't remain neutral on these things any longer if you were neutral on them before. And so when an issue is pressed up against you, you have to make a decision. You're being told you have to make a decision, right? You can't stand neutral. And so when pressed, do you think that people since 2014 have this percentage has gone down, or do you think that since 2014, this percentage has gone up? I would say that it has gone up. I think we all agree with that. I couldn't find any more recent polls than 2014 on this particular issue. And you might say, how can that possibly be? You might say that, or you might say, I understand that. There are particular advocates for a position where a person says, I am a Christian, I am a Bible-believing Christian, and I embrace completely um, LGBTQ mentality. And again, you may say, how can that be? Because we just read a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that indicates that homosexuality is in this list of Sins. In fact, it's a list of sins where people um, are not able to enter the kingdom of heaven should this be an identifying factor of their lives, uh, among other sins. So we're confused, maybe. I'd like to read a quote for you here, and I, I have it on the screen. This is by a man named Brandon Robertson. If you don't know the name Brandon Robertson, he is... Uh, uh, really kind of at the forefront, in a sense, of advocating for a, quote, biblical position that embraces the LGBTQ mindset. What does he have to say? 
He says, as a Protestant, one of the chief ways to have confidence in the correctness of one's belief about any issue is through a robust study of the Bible. Good so far. After 10 years of critical study, I have become utterly convinced, <laughs> 10 years. After 10 years of critical study, I have become utterly convinced that the Bible does not condemn LGBTQ identities, sexual expression or relationships in any form. If you read the other clobber passages in Genesis, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy and Jude, in their literary context, every single chapter discusses, discusses some sort of same-sex sexual behavior that is tied to exploitation, idolatry, and or cultural differences, rather than offering a straightforward condemnation of the act of homosexual sex itself. Okay? Uh, you may say, I didn't know there was a debate here. You may say, I understand where this guy's coming from and why is what he's saying not true. Or you may say, I completely don't understand how he could possibly say that. So here's what we're gonna do this morning. We are going to, as normal, work through all the verses and all the words of our text. However, when we get to this particular point in the text, we're going to press in here a little bit because it's very significant for our time in history. Okay? These other things, um, I believe there's a little bit more of a straightforward understanding of these, this vice list here. Um, but when it comes to this one in particular, there are some things that we must be aware of and why certain people are saying, listen, you can be both a biblical Christian and embrace LGBTQ identities, and it's all okay. But if they bring up their argumentation to you and say, I believe this, you don't believe this, your church doesn't believe this, you even have it in your statement of faith that you don't believe this, how can that possibly be? Um, you're not being loving Christians at that point, okay? There are a lot of questions here, and I hope, it is my hope, it is my goal, that among the other things being discussed in this passage that we're going to leave today with a more robust understanding, particularly to engage our culture in regards to LGBTQ identity and what the Bible has to say about that, okay? And why do we need that? Why does it matter what we believe about this? Because what we believe matters. What we believe matters. If you don't think what you believe matters and you can remain neutral on these things, you cannot press into these things, you cannot make a decision, then you're wrong about that. What we believe matters. But also, when we have a strong belief, but it is not an informed belief and all we have is passion, that's very dangerous. You are passionately convinced of something. This happens to all of us, we just have to admit it. You can be passionately convinced of something, but you have no idea why. Uh, I can't explain it to you. I can't argue my case to you. I don't know, but I am passionately convinced about it, and that's a very dangerous place to be, okay? So I would like for us to be passionately convinced of Scripture, um, but also informed on what it has to say and that it's reasonable, okay? So lots ahead for us today. So let's begin. Look with me at... 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 9. And it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We're going to stop right there just for a moment. We talked about the kingdom of God here a few weeks ago, and these are some of the things we said about the kingdom of God that we have to keep in mind. Number one, uh, the kingdom of God is something that Jesus has inaugurated, that is, started now, today. But it will consummate later. It will come to its great conclusion later, but it has already begun. That is the kingdom of God. What else is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is something that believers will inherit later, okay? You're not going to inherit it today. Oh, well, actually, I don't know the answer to that. You, you may. Uh, I hope you don't, uh, but you, you will inherit the kingdom of God uh, uh, upon your, your death, your eternal state. Okay. Uh, additionally, it is something that consists of transformational power here and now today. So it is something that Jesus inaugurated and brings us into, 
but we don't have the fullness of it yet because it has not been brought to its fullness yet. So we have then the transformational power of the kingdom of God at work in us now, but it will come to its full reality at a later time, okay? This is the kingdom of God, and it is very important that we understand the kingdom of God. Something in particular is said about the kingdom of God right here that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we have to keep in mind all three of these realities. If an unbeliever is not to inherit the kingdom of God, it means that the kingdom of God is not at work in them, which means that the transformational power of the kingdom of God is not at work in them, right? So if the transformational power of the kingdom of God is not at work in you, what are you going to look like? Someone who's not been transformed, someone who looks very different, looks like someone who belongs to a different kingdom, belongs to something other than what we belong to, right? So all those who are to inherit the kingdom of God later will be displaying its transformational power now. That was a point that I made here a few weeks ago. But there's an additional point that's being made by Paul now. That was back in chapter 4, verse 20. But there's an additional point about the kingdom of God that Paul is making here. And that new point is this, that those who belong to the kingdom of God are righteous, and those who do not belong to the kingdom of God are unrighteous. Now, that's very plain, but that's his point right here, okay? So, those who belong to the kingdom of God will be displaying that power now at work in them. That's an indicator that you belong to the kingdom of God, that there's this transformational power at work in you. But those who belong to the kingdom of God, additionally, are righteous. Those who do not belong to the kingdom of God are unrighteous. Now, we just have to state something that is a reality. Um, when we say that believers are righteous, what does that mean? Does it mean you are self-righteous? Does it mean you are boastful and prideful? Does it mean that you are better than other people? Is that what we mean by righteous? That's not what we mean by righteous. Now, can, do people think that about Christians? Absolutely. Uh, people think that when you say, I am righteous, or I am of God, or I am a chosen person of God, or I belong to the family of God, or I belong to the kingdom of God, uh, this terminology makes it seem like you are putting yourself in an elitist category, that you are something better than them. You are down here, I am up here, so I'm better than you. That's a self-righteousness, which is not at all what we're talking about. Because Christians understand the righteousness that we have, the righteous standing that we have, didn't come from us. It is not my righteousness. I am considered righteous, counted as righteous, reckoned as righteous, but that righteous standing before God didn't come from me. It came from God. He accomplished this righteousness through the righteous one who is Jesus Christ. And so when he accomplished salvation by being born as a man, taking on flesh, dying a sinner's death, taking the atonement for sins on himself in a substitutionary manner, dying and then rising again on the third day and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, something was accomplished. When we have faith in Jesus' name, all of his righteousness is now credited to our account. And so it is by faith in him we are considered righteous. Right? But as it stands, I can say I am both unrighteous and righteous. Do you understand what I mean by that? If, if you're a believer and you're honest with yourself, I think you completely understand. I have a righteous standing with God, but I'm a wretched sinner. I have a righteous standing of God where all my sin has been paid for, but I sin every day. I am both unrighteous in my conduct, but the thing about it is that all my unrighteous conduct has been paid for. And so in God's eyes, I am righteous. However, as it stands today, I am a sinner, unrighteous. So when we say that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, it means those who are not credited with the righteousness of Christ, right? We're all on the same page? This is all basic so far, okay? I think that as we press into this, these big realities about the kingdom of God become very clear. 
Okay, so those who belong to the kingdom of God are righteous, but you have to understand what we, mean, what we mean by that, right? Those who do not belong to the kingdom of God are unrighteous. In other words, their standing before God is unrighteous, and so they stand condemned. They will have to pay the wrath of God for their sins, whereas believers have already had the wrath of God paid for their sins. So two different categories of people. Is there a third category? You have the righteous you have the unrighteous, and then you have the middle ground people? No, there is no middle ground, okay? So there's two categories of people. These two categories then, in biblical terminology, become representatives of two different kingdoms, okay? So we have two kingdoms. What are those two kingdoms? There is, number one, the kingdom of light, as it is referred to in scripture, the kingdom of light. But then, additionally, we have the kingdom of darkness. And what is this about these two kingdoms? There is freedom, righteousness, and life. That is a holy nation that gives praise to God. That's kingdom of light. I'm going to read a passage on that here in just a second. But then, second, we have the kingdom of darkness, which is, a, which is about bondage, unrighteousness, and death. And it is an unholy nation that does not give praise to God. Okay? Uh, to support this, I just want to read First uh, Peter 2. Now, you might be wondering how my introduction even fits into what we're talking about so far. And I promise you that if you go with me, it does all perfectly fit together because that is the argument from the text. Okay? Paul begins by talking about the kingdom of God, and then he gives a vice list, a sin list, for a reason. Okay? And so we just need to follow what he's saying. But I think in order to properly categorize what he's saying, we need to have a full picture of what's being said, okay? So we're just going to read one, one other passage of scripture here, which comes from 1 Peter 2, 1 through 12. It's a passage you're probably very familiar with. So when I read it, it's, it these things are going to come to mind for you. But let me just read what it says. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 12. So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, and like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you might grow up into salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a corner stone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And, another quotation, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Okay, so that's identifying a people who stumble over Jesus and don't accept him. But now he's going to talk about the people who don't stumble and who do accept Jesus. What are they like? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it continues there a little bit about that. Okay. So we have these two kingdoms presented to us, people who belong to the kingdom of darkness, people who belong to the kingdom of light. Those who belong to the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of light, are considered righteous in God's eyes. Those who belong to the kingdom of darkness are considered unrighteous in God's eyes. And there is a wide divide between these two categories of people. And the unbelievable, amazing reality about this is that we all, every single one of us, used to belong to the kingdom of darkness. Every one of us. That was our condition. That is your sin condition. Before you were redeemed, before you had faith in Christ, you were in sin. The wrath of God was laid up for you rather than I hope laid up for you. This was where we lived. But by God's grace, he redeemed us. He caused our eyes to see. He caused our ears to hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Right? 
So we have been brought into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. And now being part of the kingdom of God, we look different than the kingdom of darkness. Wouldn't you agree? If you belong to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, then you should look different than the kingdom of darkness because you belong to a kingdom. You are a citizen of a kingdom. Which kingdom do you belong to? I belong to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. I am righteous. Well, then you should look like it. Or I belong to the kingdom of darkness. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. Well, then you are going to look like a citizen of that kingdom. So we're starting, I think, to understand why he gives a list of sins and lifestyles that represent what the kingdom of darkness looks like, right? While we're on this idea of kingdoms and nations and citizenship, I'd like to just uh, state something here that should be obvious to us, um, that God has created his own holy nation and it already exists. And it is not called the USA. It is called the church. And it's already in existence. We don't need to create it. It's already there. God created it. So to misunderstand these two kingdoms is to take a group of people who belong to an earthly kingdom and to force them to belong to a heavenly kingdom, which doesn't even make sense. They can't. You're trying to take something earthly and spiritual and mash them together, right? To create a kingdom of God on earth is to misunderstand that there are two spiritual kingdoms at work here. God has already created his holy nation. Does that make sense? So at their very core, the primary makeup of the person is different in these two categories. We see that, don't we? And that's the fundamental issue right here for the Corinthians. They're not creating proper category distinctions between people, and that's the issue. They're not seeing, here, is the, this, the, here are the citizens of the kingdom of God, and this is what they look like. Here are the citizens of the kingdom of darkness, and here's what they look like. Instead, they're not creating these category distinctions. They're saying we can all look the same, and what's the big deal? So Paul then gives them a list of things that they might better understand how to create this category distinction between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Does that make sense? This is what he's doing. This is his argument. So that's why he then begins second half of verse nine by saying, do not be deceived. Because as it stands, it seems as though you are being deceived. Right? So two kingdoms exist. One is righteous and the other is unrighteous. He then says, don't be deceived about this clear distinction that exists between the citizens of these two kingdoms. You all following me? I hope so. Because don't you remember, it's Brandon Robertson's suggestion, assertion, that the literary context tells us that the word of God is not actually talking about homosexuals and that it's sinful. And so do we want to find the literary context and walk through the argument here? That's what we're doing. Do not be deceived. It says literally don't be led astray. That's what the deception there is about. Now what we read here then in second half of verse 9 is a list of nouns or adjectival nouns, but nouns nonetheless, okay? These are nouns. So whatever the sin listed, it identifies continual, ongoing, persistent, unrepentant lifestyle of sinful behavior. This is very important to understand. I'm gonna say that again. Whatever sin is listed here, it identifies a continual, ongoing, persistent, unrepentant lifestyle of sinful behavior. This is not about a person who commits a sin one time or makes a mistake or a misstep. The sin is part of the very makeup of that person. It is who they are. And they can be identified by this noun. Okay? What kind of nouns are we talking about? Well, let's look at the list. Sexually immoral. 
That's a person. Does it say a person who commits sexual immorality one time? Or idolaters? Someone who has a moment of idolatrous behavior? Listen, if this were the case, none of us would be making it into heaven. You understand this, right? So we already know that this is not, this can't possibly be what's being said. Nor adulterers. Nor men who practice homosexuality. Nor thieves. Nor the greedy. Nor drunkards. Ever been drunk one time in your life? You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That'd be a little harsh, wouldn't it? Because that's obviously not what it says. But you are identified as someone who is continuously being a drunk, right? And why would you be continuously identified as being a drunk if you belong to the kingdom of darkness and the transformational power of the kingdom of God is not at work in you? It's quite obvious, isn't it? He's not saying, here are the things that you could commit to be pulled out of the kingdom of God. He's saying, here are the things that the people who don't belong to the kingdom of God do. It's descriptive. That makes sense? This is what that kingdom looks like. So make a better distinction in your minds between the types of people and what they look like. These things identify that citizenship. These things identify this citizenship. So the sins are about ongoing unrepentant sins. Additionally, these sins are not intended to be exhaustive. It's not like these are all the sins that keep a person out of heaven. Um, Paul's going to list them, each, each one of them. Here are all the sins that will keep you out of heaven. So as long as you don't commit these sins, then you're good to go. And again, that sounds a little outrageous, doesn't it? Because that's obviously not what's being said. He's giving us an idea of the, the category of this type of person. This is what they look like. I think it goes a little beyond that, but I'll give you some examples of how we know that this is not exhaustive. And those examples are here. 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 5, 1 Timothy 1. Um, you'll get the idea. Some of these things came from 1 Corinthians 5, which he's already said. I don't need to read that one. But there's another list in Galatians 5 that has some of these, but also has some extra ones. So did he leave out some sins in 1 Corinthians 6? Because that'd be bad news. Because if the church in Corinth got a list of sins that will keep you out of heaven and he forgot some, that's, ba that's bad news right? Whoops. So it's obviously not what it means. In Galatians 5, let me just read this for you. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. And he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, impurity sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Oh, and things like these. Yeah, we get it, right? He's giving a, a list of types of things, but there are some major players in this list, aren't there? I think there are big categories of sin. But he says the same thing in Galatians 5, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says it again in Galatians 5. If you are doing these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then just one more I'll reference. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. This one's important. If you're a note taker, this is very important. If you're not a note taker, I suggest that you become a note taker, at least for today, because some of these references um, are, are very needed. Should someone come to you, you're at work, or a relative, or whatever else it may be, just thoughts that creep into your own head, and you're wondering about these things. And you're saying, I mean, so many people are going this direction. Are we wrong about this? Are we wrong? It seems just so hateful. Are we wrong? Could we be wrong? And I'm, I'm trying my very best to give you everything that you need from Scripture to know for certain what the Scriptures have said about this. Because it is very clear, but when we haven't thought through this and we don't have the references and we don't have the context, what other people have to say actually seems pretty convincing at times. And I don't want you to be led astray by every wind of doctrine that comes, but instead that you might be mature and founded on sound biblical doctrine. 
Understand my motivation today in this text? In 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, it says, Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, the unholy and profane, those who, listen to this list, those who strike fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Okay? Now, where does Paul get this list right here? I just want you to see briefly. I'm not going to take a lot of time on this, but I just want you to see briefly that Paul just uh, contextualized the, uh, a, par- a portion of the Ten Commandments. There are two tables in the Ten Commandments. There are table one, a reference of the person to God, have no gods before me, okay, right? Table two is all about how the individual deals with his neighbor, right? So what Paul does in this list is he goes through the list of the second table of the law, right? It says, well, how about the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. And what's the first one he gives? Those who strike fathers and mothers, okay? Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And the next one he lists is murderers. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And what's the next one he lists? Two together, the sexually immoral and men who commit homosexuality. Number eight, commandment number eight, you shall not steal. And what does he list next? Enslavers, those who steal people and enslave them. And then number nine, you shall not bear false witness. And what does he say there at the end? Liars and perjurers, right? That's what he did. He just laid out the sins of the second table of the law. So where does Paul derive his vice list? Now, if you haven't followed me, you're losing part of our argumentation here because Paul derives his argumentation of vice list from the Old Testament law. That's the point from the Torah. First five books, the books of Moses, first five books of the Bible. Paul derives his vice list from the Old Testament law. Okay? What is the list in 1 Corinthians 6? Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. Okay, very interesting. So, it's expansive. But Paul derives his conception of sin from the Torah. This is important. All right, now, for the next few moments, we're going to press in. I told you we would on this idea of homosexuality. If you have a different translation of the Bible, when I said men who practice homosexuality, you said, wait a minute, it's not what my Bible says. Right, uh, here I have on the screen all the different translations that you might have. Not one of them the same. You see this list? Nor effeminate or abusers of themselves with mankind. Nor effeminate nor homosexuals. Nor sexual perverts. Passive homosexual partners practicing homosexuals nor men who have sex with men, or males who have sex with males. Lots of different translations here. What is it that we're actually referencing? Because the ESV says homosexuals, whereas a lot of these others don't even say that word. So do you maybe start to see the issue? There is a movie that has come out. I actually haven't figured out how to even watch it yet. It's a a bit mysterious, Uh, but it's called 1946. Has anyone in the room heard of the movie 1946? Doug has. No one else has? Uh, Okay, the movie 1946 is all, the whole premise of the movie, I understand the premise and the argumentation even though I've not seen the movie, but the whole premise of the movie is to get all of Christendom, all people who call themselves Christians, to sway their opinion to believe that God is accepting of the LGBTQ lifestyle uh, because in 1946, the Greek words were mistranslated in the Revised Standard Version of the Bible and entered in the idea that homosexuality is sinful. But before 1946, it never existed. That's the premise of the movie 1946. Should you ever hear that referenced? I don't know that you maybe you won't hear that movie referenced, but you will hear the argumentation. You will hear the argumentation that the Greek words here do not mean homosexuality. 
and they're just wrong. That's exactly what they mean. And so I'm going to take just a minute and show you that. Okay? Uh, so here are the words in question. Okay? If you like to know how this reads, it's Ute Malakoi Ute Arsenokoitai. Okay? I spelled out the word Arsenokoitai for a reason because this is the word in question, and you need to know why. You need to know that this word, arsenokoitai, was created by Paul. And there's not another reference to it outside of the scriptures. Paul made up a word here, and so do we already see that people are like, well, that's not even a real word. So what he meant is something different. And so now there's issues regarding how it's translated. This is very technical, isn't it? The issue here is people, large groups of people are attempting to give you an argument to get you to believe what they believe about this issue in this cultural moment. Do you see the weight of this? I hope you do. This is very important. This is not unimportant. We need to hear this. We need to know where the arguments are coming from and what the whole issue is. For some of us, it's very plain. I don't know that I need all the argumentation. Well, what happens when a person who does have argumentation comes against you and you have no clue what's even being talked about? So here are the words in question. This is the phrase that's translated in the ESV, men who practice homosexuality, but that's not actually literally what it says. It says, nor soft or delicate ones, nor arsenokoitai. Malakoi means soft. In the New Testament, it's only ever translated as soft clothing. That, that's just what mal malakoi means. It means soft. Okay? Uh, so, when it's in reference like this, it's talking about soft or delicate people in partnership with arsenokoitai. What is arsenokoitai? If it's true that Paul bases his vice list off of Old Testament law, then surely in the Bible that Paul was reading, this word would be there somehow in some form because that's what he's referencing. So if we can look back at the Bible that Paul would have used most times, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Greek Septuagint, then we will be able to find some of these words we would hope. And in fact, we do, okay? Um, so Paul then, here's how it goes. I, I have slides up here for you because I want you to at least have this information in your arsenal of stuff that we're talking about this morning so you can walk through this. So if Paul derives his conception of sin from the Torah, we already talked about that, then Paul develops his conception of arsenokoitai from Leviticus 18 and 20. That's where it comes from. Paul didn't create a concept that previously did not exist. He pulled this from the law itself, and I'm going to show you how he did that, and then he made application to it in the New Testament. In Leviticus 18.22, those are your two references, by the way, Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. I'll read them for you. And I'm realizing in this moment, all I have is my own personal translation of the Greek. So it reads a little weird. I don't have the other in front of me. But it says, and with a male, this is Leviticus 18.22, and with a male you will not lie in bed as with a woman, for it is an abomination. And with a male, you will not lie in bed as with a woman, for it is an abomination. Here are the two words that are of importance to us. Arsenos, which means male, and koite, which means bed. Arsenokoite. Arsenokoite. You see, he just put the words together. Okay? Although it is a new word, he took two words and he put them together to create a word that has the whole concept. And what does it mean? What does male bed mean? It means a male better, one who goes to bed with a male, one who does things in bed with another man. The bed literally means marriage bed. 
what a man does in bed as a marriage bed. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That's what the word means. What does arsenokoitai mean? What a man does in bed with another man. Okay? But he doesn't just say it in one place. He also says it in Leviticus Leviticus 20.13. It says, Whoever lies with a male in bed as with a woman, an abomination they have committed. They've committed an abomination. Both of them. Let them be put to death. They are guilty. Unfortunately, based on this passage, some, whether you know this or not, have then advocated for the death of those who practice homosexuality. Did you know this to be true? Did you know that there are some who advocate for the death penalty for homosexual practice based on this passage? Now, if you're going to advocate it for this, what must you also be an advocate for? Well, sexual immorality in general. And I don't think you're in agreement with that. Because remember the guy who we just talked about that this whole conversation came from, the man who has his father's wife? Paul did not say what? Put him to death as the law says. So you're saying that these penalties of the law for national ethnic Israel don't have a perfect tie over to today. And that is correct. That is correct. So for those who are advocating for the death of those who practice homosexuality, it's it's outrageous. It's outrageous. That's not biblical. And again, maybe that's part of the argument that you didn't even know existed, but it does. And it may be that if you stand on the biblical principle knowing that this is not what the scriptures say, then you're going to get heat from both sides. Those who want to embrace it are going to say you're not doing the right thing. Those who want to do something else with it are going to say you're not doing the right thing. And so, unfortunately, you find yourself in a very narrow window And that is the reality of the world that we live in right now. So, let's summarize this so we can move through the rest of our text. <coughs> Go to that next slide there, Rob, if you would. Okay, so here's what we have. This is a summary. There's more to that. I think we covered the ground for it, though, and the basis of what's being said. Malakoi, I told you, was the first word that we read, and it is the man acting as the woman... Because what does malakoi mean? Soft, the delicate one. And as it says in Leviticus, if you lie with a man as with a woman, both are to be put to death. They are both guilty. So Paul is indicating that both partners are guilty, not just the active partner. And so you have to just understand what I'm saying here, okay? Is that there is an active uh, participant and there is a passive participant. Are we all understanding what I'm saying? And Paul is referencing both, and he's saying they're both guilty, just as Leviticus does. Do you understand? So the ESV then translates this as men who practice homosexuality. The active and passive partner both being guilty. All right, let's move on to verse 11. Now it had said that anybody who does these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Isn't that what Paul said? Any of these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so it may shock us then what verse 11 says. And such were some of you. What was just in that list? Homosexuality. Is it unreasonable to believe that there were some of the Corinthian church who at one time were practicing homosexuals but are no longer? It seems to be that's exactly what it's saying. As were some of you. What does it not say? As are some of you. See the difference? And why is it not in the present tense any longer but in the past tense? Because they have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And if you live in the kingdom of light, you will not be identifying with these practices of darkness. That's why it says, such were some of you, but you are no longer. That is not who you are any longer. And so there is hope and there is grace, isn't there? 
Because it says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. What happens to the people in this list? Those who at one time were living lives of sexual immorality or were idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy or the drunkards or revilers or swindlers and things like these. This was us. You understand, this was us. This description is of us as were some of you. Now, if we have proper categories, you're gonna realize, but it can be me no longer. I can't be like that anymore. I don't live as part of that kingdom of darkness anymore. I have to identify myself with the kingdom of light. And if I can't, if I won't, if I refuse, what does that mean? Then you belong to a different kingdom. That's what that means. For the Corinthians, they were merging the practices of these two kingdoms and they thought that it wasn't a big deal. The guy has his mother's, or has his father's wife and they thought, they were arrogant about it. They boasted about it. They didn't care, no big deal. Or is it a big deal? Or is the topic today a big deal or is it not? I think if it is a very big deal, is it a big deal right now in 2023? It absolutely is a big deal. And does what you believe about this even matter? What you believe about this matters. So if you belong then to the kingdom of God, it will be evidenced by the fact that these things and this way of life is being put to death. You were this way, but you are no longer. You were this way, but you are no longer. And so what does this indicate for us? However countercultural this concept is, and it is. I don't know that you can get more countercultural than this statement, right? Than this thing, than this reality, than this truth. Is that it requires a change of lifestyle. You who were once murderers or drunkards, are you allowed to continue to be that? No, you must what? You must change. And if you have the power of God at work in you, guess what you can do? change and the same thing is true with all the other things listed right that can be you no longer but you must be different because you were washed you were sanctified made holy you were justified and it's it's strange that these things are 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 taking are, are being said as if they already had taken place you were washed if I was completely washed, then how am I still dirty? How do I still sin, right? If I was completely sanctified, then how is it that I still have sin in me? If I was justified, how could I possibly remain in God's good graces if I sin? Because Christ has done an unbelievable work in your life to take the wrath on himself to be a substitute for you that all these things would fall on him, the punishment for all these things would fall on him and not you. So you can be justified and yet still be struggling with sin in your life. We all have our own particular sin proclivities. This, the things that we tend to sin, right? Something you might be tempted to sin regularly is not a way that I'm tempted to sin regularly. And to be very dismissive of the fact that a person can't struggle with homosexuality is to just be ignorant of that reality. Wouldn't you agree? But now if a person was justified, sanctified, washed, had truly had faith in Christ, although it's, it's it, just like your sin proclivities, how are you saying that sin proclivity has been erased in them or it should be erased in them if it's not been erased in you? It doesn't make sense, but there are those who demand it. Now, we have to also acknowledge, as we did a few weeks ago, that even the very desires that we have are sinful. Do you have sinful desires in you? The elders were talking earlier, and I said, I'm gonna use, I can use Sam as an example. I don't think he cares. If I wanted to murder Sam, I just really wanted to murder him. That was just my heart's desire. I want him dead. 
But I said, you know what? As long as I don't act on it, then all is fine. But every day I wake up and I think how much I want to murder him. <laughs> I mean, that's fine as long as I don't ever act on it. Apply that to everything else. And you understand that it's outrageous to say, well, it's okay I have these desires. I'm just not acting on them. Wrong. Our very desires are broken, aren't they? And God calls us to be different. I'm going to end in Colossians 3, just by way of summary, and we'll be done for the day, okay? So if you would, please, just in one last place, let's look at Colossians 3. And as you're turning there, um, let me just ask this question. What do the citizens of the kingdom of God look like? What do the citizens of the kingdom of God look like? What should they look like? Do we have any idea what they should look like? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? And do you look like you belong to the kingdom of God? Ah, that's a hard question. Someone looks at you and they say, oh, you're different. You must belong to a different kingdom that I can't even wrap my mind around. But they should, because that is the whole idea of light shining in the midst of darkness. You should be different, not only in what you do, but in what you believe, and your very heart's affections should be different than the darkness of the world around us. So what does it say in Colossians 3? It says, if you have been raised with Christ, if that's you, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and so what should we do with our minds then? So set your minds then on the things that are above. If you have been raised with Christ, raised means above. If you have been raised, what, what do I do with my thinking and my mind and my thoughts? Put them up there where Christ is. Set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life, when he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And what is earthly in me? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Here's some more. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. How are we being renewed? After the what? The knowledge. So wait, so what you believe matters. Yes, we must be informed about what the scriptures have to say because it dictates then how we live. We must be growing in what we know to be true. It changes the way we live. And why does it matter the way we live? Because if you truly belong to the kingdom of God, you're going to act in such a way that you belong to the kingdom of heaven. If you have been raised, seek the things that are above if you have died, put to death what is earthly in you. If you have put off the old self, put on the new self. And if it is true, then let it be true. Things that are very difficult for us to hear and embrace many times because we've found out that this is far more than one little issue here, isn't it? I hope you're walking away this morning motivated not to clobber people with a particular passage, because that's not what it's about, but to stand on solid biblical truth. That's what it's about. To be gracious and loving, but we have to d define love biblically. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. So we have to be very careful. Can we all agree that this is a very difficult thing to navigate? Or do you not agree? It's not difficult. It's very easy for you. 
if it's very easy for you, I think you have no interaction with the outside world. Uh, this is a hard thing to navigate, but we are called to endurance. We are called to follow through with biblical, sound biblical doctrine, and it certainly includes this, right? All right, let's pray together. We're gonna sing one more song together today, but let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Your word is truth, and we stand upon your word. I pray that you would uh, please give us all uh, soft, receptive hearts to your truth, that we might stand on it, that we might be clothed with the righteousness that is Christ. If we have the righteousness of Christ, our lives ought to reflect the righteousness of Christ. If we belong to the kingdom of God, our lives ought to reflect the fact that we belong to the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God and those realities are not something that we create, but it's something that you have created. We don't get to define what these people look like. You define what these people look like. And so help us, Lord, to submit to you, the king of all the earth. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for pulling us out of the kingdom of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.